Hello and welcome to the Faber podcast for May 2010. My name is George Miller, and in today's programme, I'll be talking to two guests who have, in different ways, tackled how we make sense of our history. Later, you'll hear how in Maria McCann's novel, The Wilding, a dreadful act of violence during the English Civil War has effects that reverberate down the generations. I think what's most terrible about it is the collusion, that it's not simply an act of violence, it's an act of collusion and scapegoating which takes place, which is, and, and later those who have benefited from it refuse to face up to what they've done or, or to take any responsibility for picking up the pieces. My first guest today is James Shapiro, who looks at another way in which history has been rewritten. In this case, by those who don't believe that Shakespeare is the author of the plays attributed to him. James is Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University, and best known for his book, 1599, A Year in the Life of William Shakespeare, for which he won the 2006 Samuel Johnson Prize. In his new book, he has ventured into choppy waters. Even a brief scan of the websites dedicated to those who claim Shakespeare was not the author of the plays will reveal what passionate debate the question arouses. James's interest is not in charting the claims of those who purport to have discovered the real author of the plays, be it Francis Bacon, the Earl of Oxford, or any of a host of other pretenders to the crown, but in exploring what psychological impulses, what cultural forces lie behind their vociferous attempts to topple Shakespeare from his pedestal. And it's a cause which has numbered many illustrious figures among its devotees, such as Freud and Mark Twain. When I met James, I began by asking him what he was in pursuit of in this book. What I thought I was in pursuit of wasn't entirely clear to me when I began. What originated really as an exploration of a subject that had been largely taboo in academic circles turned into an exploration of the extent to which Shakespeare scholars, as much as anti-Stratfordians, were responsible for the whole belief that Shakespeare didn't write the plays. What do I mean by that? What I end up learning in this book was that at the root of the question, who wrote Shakespeare, were certain assumptions about the relationship between a writer and his work. And these tended to be autobiographical assumptions. We live in an age of memoir in which we assume everybody, whether a fiction writer or a nonfiction writer, is telling his or her own stories in the works. And to a large extent, that's true of 20th century and much 21st century literature. But that wasn't true of Shakespeare's day. Yet this was an assumption that's shared by all those who don't believe Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare, as well as many who do. There are those, and I count myself among them, who would stand in front of classes and say, The Tempest is an autobiographical work, Shakespeare's great leave-taking, Shakespeare's Prospero. Now, once you believe that these works are autobiographical, then almost anything goes. You can believe they were written by a man who was a doctor, a lawyer, a butcher, or a countess. You can believe, or might believe, that they were written by somebody other than Shakespeare. If, say, the Earl of Oxford had been captured by pirates and had three daughters, shouldn't he have a greater claim to have written Hamlet and King Lear than someone like Shakespeare of Stratford who didn't? So that way madness lies. What I try to do in this book is not go tit for tat with the various arguments saying Oxford had three daughters, Shakespeare did not, but rather look at the underlying assumptions and the history of this controversy. I became very quickly 
less interested in what people thought and much more interested in why they thought what they did and when they began thinking that. And that took me back to the origins of the controversy. And along the way, the controversy was believed to have started in the late 18th century. And it turns out that the document that dates to that time is a forgery. That was one of the, the most surprising and exciting finds in writing this book. Since 1850, over 50 or so candidates have been proposed as the author of these works. And all of them have been based, all of these arguments or all these claims have been based on two kinds of arguments. One autobiographical, the other topical, which is to say that the stories that the plays tell are not really about the plays themselves, but about what's going on in the world at that time. And all I've tried really hard to do in this book is explain why people began to think that and what's really wrong-headed about it. And it's a book, in a sense, about why smart people think dumb things. Uh, we all know a lot of smart people in our lives who say and think dumb things. This particular controversy has attracted more of them than the average subject matter. Sigmund Freud, Henry James, Mark Twain, and in our own day, Supreme Court justices, leading actors of the British stage. So I became fascinated with what underlying assumptions they might have that would lead them to believe that Shakespeare did not write the plays. What had happened by the mid to late 18th century? What was the shift? You mentioned this interpretation that literature was essentially autobiographical, and also the fact that for the, the first century and a half after Shakespeare's death, there was no question about authorship. So what was it that was changing? One of the things that I learned in writing this book, and I've been teaching Shakespeare for a quarter century, and I learned a lot. Uh, one of the things I learned was that no one thought these works were autobiographical, the sonnets or the plays, until the end of the 18th century. And that's when Edmund Malone, the greatest Shakespeare scholar of his day and perhaps of all time, frustrated they couldn't complete a cradle-to-grave biography of Shakespeare, cheated a bit. And what do I mean by that? He was a, an exposure of forgers and fakes and frauds of all kinds. But he forged connections between the life and the works. He came upon Sonnet 93, the one that begins describing how the speaker is like a deceived husband. And he decided, based on his reading of that sonnet, that Shakespeare must have been talking about his own relationship with Anne Hathaway, who must have been cheating on him when he was away in London and she in Stratford. And he constructs a whole story about how she didn't deserve him and the marriage was terrible. It might have been terrible. It might have been wonderful. We have no idea and no access to this. And in fact, George Stevens, another great Shakespearean at the time, warned Malone, don't go there, don't open up this Pandora's box. Malone did. And he's writing right at the end of the 18th century. The Romantics, Coleridge, Wordsworth, the Schlegels in Germany, seized on this way of reading because it so resembled the autobiographical work that they were doing in works like Wordsworth's The Prelude and other major works of this period. It was so attractive that it soon began to become almost a game of identifying where Shakespeare is telling his own stories and his works. The hardest thing for readers and scholars to accept is this is a post-19th century construction. As much as we think we find Shakespeare in his works, we're putting him there. And you see in the book, repeated again and again, the great difficulty which people have in 
dealing with the fact that Shakespeare had been essentially deified by this time. And at the same time, what we knew about the life of the man was, I think in the words of Henry James, supremely vulgar. Yes. And the, in, in some way, some account had to be given of how these works had come from this man. One of the things that I had to navigate was the story of how Shakespeare's life was invented and reinvented. Most of us turn to the latest biographies and discover what the man was like. But in fact, all of these little bits and pieces that fit into modern biographies were discovered independently and over time, so that the story of Shakespeare keeps changing. In the 17th century, we have anecdotes a couple of generations after Shakespeare died circulating, and they tell one kind of story. But once the hunt was on for documents, the only documents that survived, that would probably survive for most of us, are legal ones. Business arrangements, real estate, marital, birth, death records, and the like. And of the handful that survived for Shakespeare, many of them have to do with financial dealings or legal dealings. And because of that, the biography began to go in the direction of Shakespeare, a money-grubbing, grain-hoarding merchant. And even as that movement was taking place, the deification of Shakespeare as the greatest writer in English and maybe of all time was taking place. The gap between the biographical gritty facts and the hagiographic biographical story grew so great that eventually the weight of it forced people to begin to argue around the 1840s and 1850s that somebody else must have written these plays. And you've also, at the same time, got the beginnings of questioning, for example, the existence of Homer, and also looking at the Bible with a particular method of textual scholarship, which then could be applied, the, the higher criticism. Yes. One of the, the other things that I got to look into a bit and, and, and realized uh, that I hadn't known was the extent to which arguments about the existence of Homer as the solo great mind, that blind bard that wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. Well, by the end of the 18th century, that was exploded as a myth. And by the early 19th century, arguments about the Gospels and the life of Jesus also began to drive a wedge between the myth and the man. And these arguments quickly were imported by those questioning Shakespeare's authorship. So this was a very, very critical moment, the early 19th century, late 18th century, for how we imagine authorship and how we imagine Shakespeare. So while Shakespeare may have been an early modern writer, the authorship controversy is a very modern one. And we live in an age of memoir in which we tend to have these romantic assumptions about literature, which would have been foreign to Shakespeare and his contemporaries. And one of the things that I'm trying to do in this book is to remind us that Shakespeare is not our contemporary, however powerfully his plays continue to speak to us. When does this idea of the text as something to be literally decrypted begin? Because at the start, it seems to be you have to try and explain the text and then explain the life through the text. But actually, actual decryption in a cryptographic sense actually becomes part of the story. The cryptographic story is uh, was tedious to research because I had to read through scores of cryptological analyses of Shakespeare, which always ended up proving that he was somebody else. They had a, a magical and mysterious way of ending up just where the authors of these studies wanted them to. 
the invention of Morse code uh, was significant because all of a sudden from schoolboys or Boy Scouts on through the highest levels of society and writers like Edgar Allan Poe and others were beginning to understand and appreciate the ways in which knowledge and information could be encrypted. The encryption is one of the most fascinating parts of the story. The Baconians rose and then fell on the uh, the business of codes and secret ciphers. And yet there were unintended benefits. My favorite was William Friedman, one of the, the great cryptological minds of the 20th century, was brought over from his career as a, a medical student in Cornell to Chicago, where he was hired to work doing cryptological analysis of Baconian ciphers. He quickly became the leading scholar and investigator of codes in the world. And his ability to break the Japanese code during the Second World War resulted in a victory at the Battle of Midway and probably victory in the Pacific. So I'm not always saying that everything is bad about this controversy. All things have unintended consequences. And in this sense, although the crypts always, uh, the, the codes and uh, encrypted messages turned out to be fabrications on the part of Baconians, this had a nice happy ending. What do you think explains the peculiar tenacity with which this question has been pursued by individuals, even to the point of insanity, and also by eminent figures you mentioned earlier, Mark Twain and Sigmund Freud, who didn't just have a passing interest in it, but it seems to have become an obsession. There is more than a bit of obsession in this, and uh, I know that from the hate mail I've received since the book has just come out, and uh, from reading the uh, uh, web conversations, uh, online conversations of Marlovians, Oxfordians, and others who don't believe Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare. I think it really has to do with a sense of conspiracy. We live in an age of conspiracy and a suspicion of authority and a suspicion, I suppose, of people like me. There are those who've actually argued that uh, Shakespeare scholars are in on the take and are being paid off to suppress this information. And that may be true, but somebody's left my name off the uh, the list of those who should receive a monthly check. I think the conviction that one's belief founded on faulty assumptions has to be true. If If I believe that Shakespeare's works were truly autobiographical, I'd suspect that somebody else wrote them because somebody else's life can be made to fit those plays better than Shakespeare's. The problem, of course, with this is you have to give up believing that Shakespeare had the greatest imagination, or in fact, any imagination at all, and that all he was doing was recycling bits and pieces of things he had experienced in his plays. And I'm not willing to go there. So it simply becomes a puzzle with a solution. People love puzzles, and people love solving enigmas, and people love solving mysteries. And it's no surprise that the whodunit arose in the same 19th century moment that the Shakespeare authorship question did. But, I mean, as you, as you alluded to earlier, you, you think that, let's say, mainstream Shakespearean scholars have also, as it were, played into the hands of people who seek for alternative authorship solutions by, by themselves, indulging in, is it fair to say, indulging in autobiographical explanations? You know, Malone set a lot of precedents, and one of the precedents he set was this. I read Shakespeare, I exist deeply in these works, and I know what their author thought, and I know when he is writing his own experience into those works. 
I spent a quarter century reading and teaching Shakespeare. And that's basically all I do, unless I'm writing about him. And I don't know where anyone has the confidence to say this is where he is putting his own life into his work. Now, I'm sure there are places where his life does appear in those works, but we don't know when or how or why. We don't know enough about his daily life or about the life of any early modern writer to make those kind of claims. So one of the things that I'm trying to do is chasten fellow Shakespeareans who want to indulge in that desire to say Hamlet was written on the death of his father or the death of his son. It may have been, it may not have been, and we'll never know. And yet, persisting in teaching and writing in those ways about Shakespeare's life enables those who believe that Oxford or Marlowe or Queen Elizabeth wrote the plays to make arguments based on the same shaky foundations. But, I mean, I was very interested in what you say in the book about the fact during your own teaching lifetime, there has been a genuine revolution in the understanding of how the plays were written. And so when you began teaching, the notion of them, some of them being collaborative efforts was, was alien. I did not know when I began teaching that three of the works on my syllabus that I regularly taught, Titus Andronicus, Timon of Athens, and Pericles, were collaborative works. And uh, three other works as well at that time, Henry VIII, Two Noble Kinsmen, which I didn't teach those works. And we now know Cardinio, which was a, a lost play that Shakespeare collaborated on with Fletcher, existed as well. Macbeth happened to be tied up by Middleton after his death, so the play we have has Middletonian touches in it. The question of collaboration is slowly, slowly winning acceptance in Shakespeare circles. It makes it very hard for those who read the works autobiographically. If you know Shakespeare wrote 60% of Time of Athens and Middleton wrote 40%, either Shakespeare sought out a collaborator who had the same psychopathology and family troubles as he did, or you have to give up that enterprise of writing and reading the life out of the works. Although it doesn't, it doesn't seem to entirely deter the Oxfordians who, even given inconvenient death dates, see some sort of posthumous, posthumous collaboration yeah, going on. Yeah, this is the um, what I like to think of as the yard sale uh, version of Oxford dying in 1604 and Fletcher and Middleton and, and, and George Wilkin and others coming upon the estate sale and each grabbing manuscripts, uh, it doesn't work. The recent publication in the Arden series of A Double Falsehood has already made the Oxfordians nervous about some kind of conspiracy to release this because that collaborative work that's based on an earlier and lost play by Shakespeare and Fletcher that I mentioned, Cardinio, can only have been written after Cervantes, who is the source of this, Don Quixote, had published Don Quixote in 1605, a year after Oxford died. So you can just see how punishing the argument for Shakespeare the collaborator is, both for those who don't believe Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare, and for those who persist in thinking that you can read the life out of the works. I mean, I'm, I'm laughing as you're describing the, the convolutions of the yard sale scenario, but the level of invective, the level mm. of passion invested mm. is quite profound. And you, you write very interestingly about how, for example, Wikipedia and the web have really changed the, the method of the, um, the debate. I follow a lot of quiet ways in which this debate is, is changing. And I would urge anyone interested in it to go look at the Wikipedia site for the Shakespeare authorship controversy not just the article, but the discussion underlying that site. And there you will see the trench warfare back and forth from defenders of Shakespeare and those who want to attack his claims to have authored the plays. 
And I have to say to their credit, those who attack Shakespeare are winning that war. Why? Because in wiki world, the last one to enter and delete what his opponents or her opponents said wins. And the democratization of knowledge on the web is a wonderful thing, and in this case, a very dangerous thing. I mean, maybe I can ask you in conclusion then, James, because at one point in the book, you you make a sort of implicit comparison with those who would like to see intelligent design taught alongside Darwinism. I mean, do you think, although some of this can be dismissed and laughed off as, as the fantasies of crackpots, there is actually something quite corrosive of our culture here? That's exactly the word. I'm, I'm trying to say something not just about what happened in 1900 or something that happened in, in 1600 but something that's happening today. And this book, and it's only slowly becoming clear to me, speaks to the way we read now. And in the end, I discovered while writing this book that all I was doing was writing a long footnote to the way we read now. And it speaks to our own comfort level with controversy, our experience of a media that believes every argument should have both sides fully represented, whether it's intelligent design or the authorship controversy. And I'm, and I'm arguing that that's probably a mistake uh, and that we have to look at the ways in which we come to understand things today and make up our minds and look at evidence. And a lot of it has to do with evidence. And one of the saddest things for me in investigating this is Supreme Court Justice Stevens, who's one of the great liberal fighters in the world, along with Justice Scalia, who is a right-wing and, I think, dangerous legislator, both believe that the Earl of Oxford wrote the plays. Why? Because they lack an historical understanding of evidence. And if individuals with this much power and this much, uh, uh, this greater reputation in this world win awards like Stevens just did for Oxfordian of the Year, it should give us all pause. James Shapiro. Contested Will is out now in hardback. And his previous book, 1599, A Year in the Life of Shakespeare, is available in paperback. My second guest today is Maria McCann. Maria's first novel, As Meat Love Sold, was published a decade ago to great acclaim. That book was set during the English Civil War, so it's perhaps fitting that her second novel, The Wilding, which Faber has just published, should be set during the Restoration. The monarchy has been restored, and on the face of it, life has regained a semblance of normality. But as the events of the Wilding show, it is only a semblance. Under the surface, people are still living with what they did, or what was done to them, during the conflict. That is what Jonathan Diamond, the narrator of Maria's novel, is about to discover when the book opens. He's a young man from a good West Country family, who makes his living as an itinerant cider maker. But when a boy arrives late one night with a message from his dying uncle, the tranquil surface of Jonathan's existence is about to be disturbed forever. Reading the book, I was reminded of much more recent accounts of the scars left in communities after 20th century conflicts such as the Spanish Civil War, when communities lived with their secrets of collusion and betrayal for decades. The first thing I asked Maria was what it was about the Civil War that had caught her imagination. It's the passion and it's the sense of possibility. I am still disappointed that we had the restoration, I think, um, without being romantic about the Commonwealth period and the many things that were wrong with it. I do feel um, disappointed each time I contemplate the fact that we started again at stage one. 
Um, about the restoration, I think it's how you cope with unspeakable things that have been done. And of course, that's very much what the wilding is about, how you go about the rest of your life when you've been at war with your neighbours and sometimes with your relatives. And that, of course, is a phenomenon which persists down the centuries. I mean, are you yes. conscious of, uh, I know it's a sort of a much maligned word, but relevance, so that, that what you're writing about has some kind of relevance to contemporary concerns too? I know that some writers go out of their way in order to think through the relevance, you know, th those kind of resonances before they start. I don't. <laughs> um, what happens is that my imagination is caught by a particular crisis, a character in crisis. As I start to think about what might that person have done or what might be wrong, I become emotionally bound up with that character. As I begin to think about the how and why the plot unfolds, as the plot unfolds, then larger, more abstract or theoretical concerns start to... It, it's a very odd thing. They start to be drawn into it. The image I have in my mind is of water going down a plug hole, sucking in everything into a vortex. That's what I think of. That's what I see in my mind when I think about the process. It starts with the energy at the heart of it, which is the dynamic interaction between the characters but other things get sucked into it as the fiction develops now to begin at the very beginning i have to confess i didn't know what a wilding was before i read your book so it might be helpful just to tell listeners what a wilding is a wilding is the name given to an apple tree that springs up without being planted. So somebody has thrown a core somewhere or a seed has got somewhere and an apple tree springs up. Nobody's quite sure what it's going to be. It's described in the novel as a bastard apple tree. Mm. But some in some of these apple trees inside a district have actually proven to be very good cider stock. You mentioned the novel is set in a cider district and the making of cider is absolutely central to the plot. Jonathan Diamond, the narrator, has a cider press. He goes, he's an itinerant um, cider maker. W when did that become part of the imaginative world of, of this novel for you? Well, actually, it wasn't the first thing. The first thing was what happens in the Guildhall, which obviously I can't mention in any detail um, because it will spoil the plot for readers. But I needed some reason for my man to visit his aunt. And I had been interested in itinerant workers ever since I went to visit Thomas Hardy's house, Max Gate, and we were shown the plans of the house, which Hardy drew up himself, and there was a room there for itinerant workers. And when I asked who they might have been, they said, well, people who came to help with the harvest, maybe cider makers. Now, there is a Thomas Hardy poem called, I think, Lengthening Days at the Homestead, which is about an itinerant cider maker. So we know that they were there in the 19th century, and I did a little bit of research on these and found that they probably had with them a mechanised device for pulping the apples. Presumably the householders pressed it themselves. I'm not quite sure at which point these things fused together and I had the idea of making John an itinerant cider maker. Something that's been asked a number of times is, could he have had such a press? And the answer is, I don't see why not. Presses were constructed of elm wood they didn't have a great deal of heavy metal on them. If you could 
dismantle one and put it together, I don't see why a horse and cart couldn't pull it. And pardon the pun, you must have immersed yourself in the cider making <laughs> process because there's lots of learning, very lightly worn, but nonetheless, you, you obviously know a lot about how cider used to be made. I did become very interested in 17th century cider making. It was immensely popular then and writers sometimes look back to it nostalgically as being the golden age of British cider, but unfortunately most of the cultivars have gone and the one that everybody praised at that time was an apple called the Red Streak, which was supposed to give such superlative cider that it was every bit as good as wine. Now there is an apple called the Red Streak now, but it's not the same. So we'll never know what that authentic taste was like. Yes, I did get very interested in the... Um, I've got Somerset, this Somerset Pomona at home with all the different photographs of all the different apples in it. And the fact that the southwest is unusual in the number of apples that it grows, which are especially for cider making, because I discovered in the southeast you tend to get more all-purpose apples. You don't, go, don't get those particular pungent varieties that are for cider and cider alone. The novel begins with a letter. Tell me a little bit about what, what that letter is going to lead to. That letter is going to lead to something which in a way is a murder mystery, but the novel is not really what you'd call a whodunit. It's a, a process of disillusionment, a process of self-knowledge and growth, the ripping away of illusions that the hero has about himself and the dissolving of his smugness. He's a young man who is basically good, but he's in denial, like the rest of the country, about the reality of what England has been through in the civil wars. He's sure that his family have always been on the right side. He's sure that the right side would never do anything wrong. He's sure that he's in a completely different universe, as it were, from less fortunate individuals, the people who have the wrong beliefs, the people who are not comfortable. And he's living, he believes he's living in a pastoral idyll, although he would never use that word. Whereas the family saga, if you like, into which he's stumbling is something which is more like a gothic in some ways. And as you say, it's, it's really about him becoming a man, isn't it? There's a, there's a, there's a lot in the book oh, yes. about, about being either a, a boy or accepting a man's responsibilities, and he mm. very much oscillates between the two, it seemed to me. Yes, that's right. I mean, he is in his 20s, but at the same time, craftsmen often didn't marry until they were in their mid-20s. They couldn't afford to, and until you had married, really, you were still pretty much at home with your parents. I got some flack from a reader online. I can't remember where I saw it, but it amused me a lot. It was something I saw on the internet which said that this reader couldn't really take to him because he kept talking about breaking away from his parents, but he didn't, you know, he hadn't done it. And I thought, well, no, obviously not. You know, you don't continue to obsess about these things once you've done them. It's mm. because you can't do them that you continue to talk about them to yourself. Mm. It's a bit like saying, you know, Hamlet, why doesn't he just sort himself out and get back to Wittenberg? Yes, 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 exactly. <laughs> Tell me, I, I'm intrigued in particular by some of the female characters in this book. And I wanted to ask you about Tamar, who's the, um, who's the young woman who's portrayed on, on the cover of the book. Tell me about, about creating that character, because she, at the start, she's, she's really is a complete mystery. She's kind of almost like a wild animal. She's compared to a, a fox by Jonathan. Tell me about what kind of young woman she is. Well, she's a young woman who has no patience with the illusions of a young man like Jonathan, 
that because of her lonely status, she's in a position where she can't show it. So she's like servants throughout the ages who have their private opinions, which may be quite acerbic, but are not able most of the time to reveal them, except to other servants. What is it about her that captivates Jonathan so much, do you think? I think it's the sense. He senses the lack of deference. It nettles him and exasperates him and and he does have a desire on one level he has a desire to help this young woman so she appeals to a compassion in him because as I said before he is essentially decent but I think also he has a desire to pull her into line he doesn't like it when she speaks to him too casually and he doesn't like that in anyone does he like he likes servants to know their place I think yes yes and and, and I think in in that he is just normal for Mm. his time there would be few people who wouldn't feel the same. Mm. Tell me about that, that ex- aspect of writing historical fiction, because you must quite often in your mind have the question, well, well, would they have mm. done this? Would Aww. they have thought like <laughs> yes. this? Yes. How, do you, how do you deal with that? What, what sort of, do you have sort of ground rules? Yes, I do. Um, I, rest- I try to restrict always all the language and, and thought to what that character could have had in terms of their intellect and education. And that can sometimes get quite difficult. I have a, a longing to write a third-person omniscient novel which has an educated <laughs> narrative voice because it can be quite difficult to convey complex ideas, complex perceptions, situations in the limited language that is all you can allow yourself for a particular narrator. Sometimes as well you have to contain yourself and work only with well, basically, you're left with the framework of religion. Very often, re- religion and social class are all that you've got. Jon- Jonathan uses cider-making as a simple metaphor for life. It doesn't take him very far, but he sometimes works within that, talking about apples going bad and doctoring cider and murk clearing and so on. Yeah. But it's a very limited metaphor. I, I do think it is a, a, a real... It is the real challenge. It's it's the most difficult part of it, mm. in fact. In writing the part about, uh, in writing the chapter called Lovers of the Gentleman, I think it's in that chapter that I have a little bit of information about how people spoke about the devil mm. and how witches imagined that sexual intercourse with the devil might be or perhaps how their persecutors imagined it might be. And and that is that is all straight from accounts of the time. And it's extraordinary. It, it, it begs more questions than it answers, really. Mm. Why would anybody want to do, want to do that, really? Yeah, you, mentioned, you mentioned religion and, and deference, and mm. there is a hint at one point in the book, because I think probably for modern readers, the religious interpretation of life is probably the most alien for from, from most readers. And there is one point in the book where Jonathan does seem to be quite seriously questioning the accepted view of religion, where he talks about faithlessness i think so i suppose i suppose my question is is that you as a novelist poking through this interpretative sort of seal that that might otherwise be on on everybody's mindset in the book i suppose it's a way of imagining how someone in a religious age might experience doubt who isn't quite able to take it to its logical conclusion and say there is no God. The nearest he can get is to say God is there, but I feel somehow cut off from him. Whereas 
in As Meat Loves Salt, I give Jacob a mystic experience. He's not able to understand it. And he is not, neither is his friend and lover able to interpret it for him. But he has it. I mentioned the female characters, and I thought Aunt Harriet was a terrific creation. And I imagined that she must have been great fun to write to mm. this, this powerful, domineering virago of a woman. Yes, she was. <laughs> it's always fun to write about what you dislike, um, to be able to inject venom into it. And yet at the same time, I had to only write things that I was comfortable about writing, if that doesn't sound too contradictory. So I do allow her moments when the loneliness and sadness of her life is glimpsed, mm. even by Jonathan, as she sits alone and he realises that she has nothing left in her life now except looking forward to death and admits that there is a kind of bitter strength in her. She's done an appalling thing, which again, we can't mention. <laughs> it's no excuse, but she has done it under severe provocation. It's not been completely wanton. She has done it as a way of solving what was developing into an intolerable situation for her and probably would have continued to get worse had she not had the inspired <laughs> evil idea that she could solve it in the way that she does. As you say, we don't want to give it away, but we're mm. talking about an event which occurred in the Civil War and which has ripples. In fact, the character Joan uses the, the phrase ripples of the war, oh. and it is one of the most sort of terrible ripples that oh. that goes down through the, the decades that, that follow it, isn't it? Yes, that's right. And this um, that part of the novel was actually based on a real-life event. It's the only incident in the novel which I consciously based on something that actually happened. <laughs> I was looking at a review the other day which said that the reviewer found this absolutely astonishing and um, I think was unwilling to believe it. And while it's no defence in fiction to say that something actually happened, it did amuse me that this was the only thing that actually happened that she had picked in the novel. The sources that I had about this incident, I came across when I was doing the research for As Meat Loves Salt, and I didn't think at that time that I would ever use this thing in a novel. But I found it very painful. I did spend quite a lot of time thinking about it. Because with the minimal information that I had, I couldn't work out how it had happened. And I concluded that it was to do with power relationships, that somebody had been defenceless and had crossed someone else who was very powerful. I can't, again, I can't say much more for fear of giving away the plot. But I did continue to think about it for a while. And when I finally decided to make it the basis of a novel, because this, in fact, was the seed of the novel and not Jonathan and his press, this was the imaginative seed of the novel, what would happen after an event like that. I discovered that I'd actually used the same name almost exactly as the name of the real-life victim. I had transposed a couple of letters in the name. Mm. So it had, it had sort of somehow embedded itself it in you. It had lodged itself very deep, yes. It's an event of such brutality that it brings to mind something like, for example, the former Yugoslavia or some mm. modern-day mm. civil war mm. situation. So it's, 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 it seems mm. very modern in, in that kind of brutality. I think what's most terrible about it is the collusion, that it's not simply an act of violence, it's an act of collusion and scapegoating which takes place, which is, and, and later those who have benefited from it refuse to face up to what they've done or, or to take any responsibility for picking up the pieces. 
So again, it, it has echoes of situations of occupation mm. or after mm. after yes. the occupation of France or the Spanish yes. Civil War, yes. people's, people's minds sort of close against it and, and the, the outcast is, as you say, scapegoated. Yes, absolutely. I wondered, do you envisage writing historical novels with female narrators? There are clearly difficulties in terms of, you know, autonomy within certain mm. societies, but is that is that something that you can envisage doing in the future? Oh, yes. Um, the novel that I'm writing at the moment actually doesn't have a narrator, doesn't have a first-person narrator, but it has two narratives, one from the point of view of one woman and another from the point of view of another woman. So we don't get a male perspective at all in the mm. one that I'm writing at the moment, and it makes a lovely change. Mm. I don't want to spend my entire life impersonating <laughs> men in print. I think in terms of As Meat Loves Salt, that particular story could not have, it could not have happened to a woman and I've been asked why I made his lover male and partly it was because I needed somebody who could give him a really good fight and women were so systematically disadvantaged during that period that a woman could never have led Jacob the merry dance that Ferris leads him. It, would, it, it just couldn't work. She would never have stood a chance. In terms of this novel, I suppose that kind of gendered complacency is part of what I wanted to remove from Jonathan as well, because he's definitely, in, in terms of gender, he's, he's won the lottery. He's on the winning side, definitely, he's, and he hasn't thought about, really, about women at all, except that he knows that he doesn't want to... Well, the, the, actually, the one time when he comes close to being in a woman's position is when his parents are trying to arrange a marriage for him with a woman called Anne Huxtable, whom he thinks of with revulsion and he absolutely refuses to countenance that that could happen that's not going to happen to him yeah it did seem to me that he did he in his position sometimes he did occupy a slightly female role in that he wasn't the master of his destiny that he might have wished himself to be but was sometimes being deceived or being being pushed by by forces beyond his control. Well, that, that's partly, of course, because although he fancies himself as a great plotter and um, manipulator and discoverer, he is he is hopelessly outdistanced by the older generation. Throughout the novel, he continues to speak of his father as being this very straightforward and innocent and plain person. And in fact, his father is, while being benign, his father is actually much craftier than Jonathan gives him credit for. Mm. Yeah, he does. He does misread the situation quite often, doesn't mm. he? Yes, his his father is um, is a manipulator for for good, mm. but he, there's there's nothing simple or helpless or innocent about his father. He manages to get people to do things that he wants them to do. You mentioned witchcraft a moment ago, and that's that's I suppose a a female realm in the novel. Although again, it's very it's very subtly. It's not it's not in the foreground. Is that something that you had to do a lot of research into in order to portray? I did some, but I didn't want it to become a witchcraft novel. Earlier on, when you were asking me something, I said, I don't know why, pe why people would do that when we're talking about witches and um, sex with the devil. And, and what I meant to say, actually, and didn't make clear, was that the, the experience is described as being so unpleasant that it appears to be totally unerotic. Why women would go in for witchcraft, why they would want to see themselves as having access to the devil, I can understand entirely. It, it's obvious, really, in terms of the disadvantage and you know the desire to, the lack of control over one's life. The less control people have over their own lives, the more they believe in the supernatural and in witchcraft. 
I did some research about witchcraft in the 17th century, but I I kept it to the absolute minimum. I really didn't want it to become a, a novel about witches. It's clear in the novel that this witchcraft is a way of earning a living. There is no real supernatural power involved. Yeah, you say something nice about writing in the novel. You say a writer is always an unknown quantity, never more so than when the writer is a woman. But writing is something which has clearly has power in this novel in order to establish one's credentials or present oneself in a particular fashion. I thought that was a, an interesting insight. It's only by writing that one of the main victims in the novel is able to express the trauma of what's happened and the consequences. And I t- do tend to use writing this way. In His Meat Loves Salt, I used it um, as a declaration of love. There was a declaration of love made which could only be put into writing because the declarer couldn't face the trauma of, of making that declaration and being rejected, so, so put it away. <sighs> Do I think that writing is a secret place? Yes, I suppose so. And and something with power. I mean, later in the novel, without giving anything away, there is a document in Latin, and and the yes. fact that the, the, the fact of that means it contains a sort of secret power too, doesn't it? Yes, I'm I'm interested in the relationship between grammar and glamour and grimoire, all of those connections from a time when writing was itself glamorous and secret and the importance of writing in spells and of writing down something and your signature, signing one's signature being an act, a performance which commits you to something, mm. all, all of those ideas. And a, and a proof of something, a proof of identity, proof yes. that you are who you, who you claim to be. Yes, Yes, you start, yes, you you declare your identity by making a mark on a piece of paper. We're, we're so used to this now that we don't think about it. Let me ask you in conclusion, Maria. Do, do you think of yourself as a historical novelist, or is that is that a pigeonhole? Do you how do you how do you respond to that um, label? This is very difficult to answer because if I say that I don't think of myself as a historical novelist, people who do identify themselves as historical novelists can get upset. <laughs> Margaret Atwood has received flack for calling herself her, her fiction speculative fictions, as though she were being snobbish by distance, distancing herself from science fiction. I would say that at, at present I am a historical novelist, but it doesn't mean that I would never want to write anything else. So watch this space. But the next one's going to be historical. The next one is historical, yes. But it's set in the 18th century and I'm trying to edge my way slowly towards the present day. (laughs) Maria McCann. The Wilding is out now in large format paperback. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast. But I'll be back again in a few weeks' time with more interviews with authors of new titles. I do hope you can join me then. And until then, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.